Welcome to Scripture Uncovered, a podcast on the Bible brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. This week, we're going to bring you part two of Dr. Creasy's introduction to Revelation. And next week, we'll be back with the regular program, and Dr. Creasy will talk about Logos' latest teaching tour in Greece. Remember, if you enjoy Dr. Creasy's teaching of Revelation, you can get the complete course in the Logos Online Classroom. Just go to LogosBibleStudy.com, click on Online Classroom, and don't forget to enter coupon code PATMOS2018 to get 30% off enrollment. That's P-A-T-M-O-S 2018. Now, time for the program. Here's Dr. Creasy. So welcome back to our ongoing study of the book of Revelation. We're now moving into lesson number two, which I've titled Introduction to Revelation, Part Two. My way of review. All works of art, literary, musical, and visual, mirror the time and culture from which they emerge, and Revelation is no exception. In lesson one, we began our introduction to Revelation by examining its historical and cultural context, creating the framework within which we'll engage the text itself. Now, we learned that Revelation is a product of the tumultuous second half of the first century, a period marked by political instability within the Roman Empire, during which five and possibly six of its seven emperors are dispatched by murder or suicide. The great Jewish revolt of AD 66 to 73, during which Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed and 1.2 million Jews are killed. The emerging state-sponsored persecution against the church. The catastrophic eruption of Mount Vesuvius in AD 79, which blanketed a large part of the Roman Empire with volcanic ash. The rise of the Emperor Domitian, AD 81 to 96, and John's exile to the island of Patmos during Domitian's reign. We have a nice illustration again David Roberts, The Siege and Destruction of Jerusalem, 1850, in a private collection. We can envision Jerusalem burning. And here we have Francesco Paez the destruction of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem and oil on canvas from 1867 in the Academia in Venice. We can see the altar at the temple, a huge structure, and it would need to be a million people come on Passover Pentecost Tabernacles to sacrifice. You need a big facility to do that. And the temple, the fighting that went on in the temple between the Romans and the Zealots, the whole thing caught fire, collapsed, and it spread to the city. Now, by way of preview, to understand Revelation, we must understand its historical and cultural context. But we must also understand that Revelation did not suddenly appear at the end of the first century AD in a literary or theological vacuum. It's one of many works within the genre of apocalyptic literature works that date all the way back to the 7th century BC, such as portions of Isaiah and Ezekiel, Joel, Zechariah, scriptural works from the 3rd century BC up through AD 70, like Daniel, portions of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, 2nd Peter, and Jude. The apocalyptic genre also includes many extra-biblical texts, 
those outside of the biblical canon, such as the Sibylline Oracles, the Qumran War Scroll, 1st, 2nd, and 4th Enoch, 4th Ezra, 2nd Baruch, the 2nd century Apocalypse of Peter, and the Shepherd of Hermes, to name only a few in that line of apocalyptic literature. We've already looked at the Qumran War Scroll. This is the War of the Sons of Light against the Sons of Darkness. It was discovered in Cave 1 at Qumran among the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it describes an apocalyptic battle between the Sons of Light and the Sons of Darkness, in which the Sons of Light conquer the Sons of Darkness. A new kingdom is ushered in with a messianic figure as the head of that kingdom and it will be that way for all of eternity in the Qumran War Scroll. And of course, we must also understand the structural and stylistic devices our author uses to bring his apocalyptic vision to life, how he creates the text, color, tone, and texture. And finally, if we're to engage Revelation as educated readers of scripture, which we're striving to become, we must also understand the message our author intended to convey to his original audience. He is writing for a particular audience at a particular time, specifically the seven churches that will be mentioned and cover letters will be written to by John. And the message is an urgent one. Revelation ends with Jesus' assurance, yes, I am coming soon. And John's response, amen, come Lord Jesus. It's like he's knocking on the door. This ending stresses the immediacy of the Lord's return. And John expected that he and his audience would witness Jesus' return in glory very soon. Very soon indeed. In lesson one, we outlined our introduction to Revelation noting that would examine our text's historical and cultural context, its literary genre, its structural and stylistic design, and its message. And in lesson one, we examined Revelation's historical and cultural context. Now, we turn to its literary genre. Revelation is one work in a long line of apocalyptic literature stretching all the way back to the 7th century BC. And Revelation, of course, is written in Greek, as are all the New Testament books. The opening word of the book of Revelation is apocalypsis, translated literally as to make naked or to unveil. Our New American Bible translation renders the word revelation, as do most modern-day translations. Older translations render it apocalypse, simply Englishing the Greek word. But that's key to the genre. A revelation is the unveiling of a subject previously hidden, things that could not be known apart from the unveiling. And typically, such an unveiling involves a vision of the end times most often provided by a messenger or angel sent from God. So a revelation is an unveiling of a subject that we would not have known apart from that unveiling. And the messenger is typically a quasi-divine 
messenger. We have a nice illustration, an illuminated manuscript from the 13th century in the British Library. And we see at the top of the manuscript, an angel appears to St. John. If you look closely at the illumination, you can see the angel. John is asleep. He's wearing red and blue. And the angel is giving him the revelation. He's unveiling the vision. And we'll see that very scene in chapter 1 of Revelation. Now, Judaism, unique among religions of the ancient world, offers a linear perspective of history. Unlike other religions that view history as cyclical in nature, that is, birth in the springtime, growth in the summer, harvest in the autumn, and death in the winter, it goes round and round and round, Judaism views history as linear in nature. It has a beginning, Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It has a middle, the growth and development of Israel as a covenant community under God. And it has an end, the advent of the kingdom. Christianity inherits this worldview and sees in it the beginning, Genesis through Malachi, the middle, the gospels and epistles, and the end, Revelation, the fullness of the kingdom of God ushered in by the return of Christ and the final judgment. A linear worldview as opposed to a cyclical worldview. A linear worldview creates an imperative to define meaning. If reality is cyclical, it just goes round and round and round, birth, growth, harvest, death, and round and round. There's no imperative to define meaning. It simply is. But if your worldview is linear with a beginning, a middle, and an end, well, history's moving toward a goal. And what is the goal? And what is our role in it? The genre of apocalyptic literature offers a vision of that goal, an unfolding of God's plan and the final steps toward history's fulfillment. In the deepest sense, all apocalyptic literature is prophetic in that it articulates and manifests God's plan and his intention toward humanity. With a linear worldview, we have an imperative to define meaning. Now, a biblical prophet, as we've noted in our studies of the Old Testament, a biblical prophet, by definition, stands between God and the people and speaks to the people on behalf of God. A priest stands in the same position facing the opposite way. A priest speaks to God on behalf of the people. Now, the message the prophet speaks most often concerns events within his own historical time. Isaiah, for example, is called to be a prophet in Isaiah chapter 6, 1 through 9. And let me read it to you. In the year that King Uzziah died, I, Isaiah, saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Which will be repeated, by the way, in Revelation. 
At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and he said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. And then I, Isaiah, heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people. So Isaiah will be a spokesman of God to the people. Called to be a prophet. The opening verse establishes Isaiah's historical context. We read in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem, southern kingdom and its capital, that Isaiah son of Amos saw during the reigns of kings Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Now we read in chapter 6, verse 1, that Isaiah is called to be a prophet in the year that King Uzziah died. Historically, that is 740 B.C. And he continues speaking as a prophet through the reign of King Hezekiah, who dies in 686 B.C. So Isaiah is active as a prophet from 740 to 686 during the reigns of those four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And what is happening between 740 and 686? Well, we haven't gotten to First and Second Kings yet, but when we do, we'll learn that in 722, the Assyrian Empire, northern Iraq of today, sweeps out of the north and obliterates the entire northern kingdom of Israel. And then in 701, Assyria attacks Jerusalem. They are the two big events on the world stage during the time of Isaiah. And what Isaiah says will refer specifically to those events. These two events form the immediate historical context for what Isaiah has to say in chapters 1 through 39, often referred to as 1st Isaiah. Chapters 40 to 55 comprise what's often called 2nd Isaiah and refer to events after the Babylonian captivity 586 to 539, events that take place during the time of Cyrus, king of Persia, who defeats the Babylonian Empire and allows the Jews to return home and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And chapters 56 to 66 comprise what's often called Third Isaiah, composed sometime between 530 and 510, which speak of the moral and ethical imperatives demanded by a divinely restored kingdom. So although shaped over a period of 200 years by a variety of authors, editors, and redactors, the Isaiah persona, the character of Isaiah, dominates the book. And from a literary perspective, the book reflects an astonishingly complex structural and thematic unity. Other prophets likewise reflect events within their own historical context. But in post-exilic times, that is, after the Babylonian captivity, after 
586 to 539, prophecy begins to shift focus from current events to future events, from current catastrophe to a coming kingdom, a conclusion in that linear narrative, one in which God will fulfill the linear course of history, ushering in the kingdom of God. The development of this apocalyptic refocusing spans roughly 200 BC to 200 AD, about a 400-year period, with precursors going all the way back to the 7th century BC. Now, if we look at this genre of apocalyptic literature, we might follow its development in three stages. The first stage, from the 7th to the 4th century BC, we have four canonical books in the Bible that would fit into this period. Isaiah, chapters 24 to 27 and 56 to 66. Ezekiel, chapters 37 to 48. All of Joel and all of Zechariah. They're apocalyptic literature. Phase two is from the late third century BC up until AD 70. We have in blue up front, the canonical books of Daniel, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, 2nd Peter, and Jude. Plus, we have a lot of other non-biblical works in the genre as well, including the Dead Sea Scrolls, the War Scroll from the Dead Sea Scrolls. And finally, phase three, we have AD 70 to the 2nd century AD, we have one canonical work, that is the book of Revelation, but a lot of other works as well. Uh, the Sibylline Oracles, book four, uh, the Shepherd of Hermes, second century AD, and all the ones I have listed here up front. It's not a comprehensive list, but it's an illustrative list of a long line of apocalyptic literature. And within that genre, there are conventions within the genre that all of these works will follow, just as in any genre of literature. One of my favorites is thriller novels. I'm rereading right now all of the Vince Flynn Mitch Rapp novels. They are so much fun. I call it sport reading, but I just love those novels. The CIA assassin novels. And every single one of them, by whatever author that might be, you have the hero, you have a really nasty villain of some kind, you have the world in peril, and through a variety of covert operational skills, the hero will save the world. It's a formulaic kind of genre, and you see the same conventions recurring over and over again. Another one of my favorite genres is homicide detective procedural novels like the Harry Bosch novels, you know, where you have a particularly gruesome murder, you have the ace detective come on the scene, and through a variety of criminal procedural uh, events, he will uncover the murderer or the plot that leads to the murder. But all these novels have the same conventions in them. The very same thing with apocalyptic literature. All the apocalyptic works have the very same conventions and we'll see them recurring in the book of Revelation. 
In general, as the apocalyptic genre develops, it moves from general to specific, from its own historical context to a time in the near future. And we have concrete examples of this movement in the New Testament. As I've noted in our study of the Gospels, Jesus was, first and foremost, a radical prophet living on the bleeding edge of the apocalyptic vision. In the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, verses 29 to 30, he speaks prophetically of events soon to come. Here's what he says. Immediately after the distress of those days, the days of great tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Of course, Jesus' disciples want to know when these things will happen. And they ask him. Jesus answers stating flatly, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This generation will not pass away. Stunned, his disciples asked for a specific time. Well, what would be the date and the time? Jesus deflects that question, cautiously replying, of that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. I can't tell you the specific day or time on your watch. Only the Father knows. But he does warn his disciples, be prepared, for at an hour you do not expect the Son of Man will come. You're listening to Scripture Uncovered, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Now, back to the program. Here's Dr. Creasy. So, Jesus' disciples expected these catastrophic events to take place during their lifetime. He said, this generation will not pass away before all these things happen. And through the apostles' teaching, the entire first generation of the church believed that as well. Peter says in writing in the mid-60s, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, that is, when least expected. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it laid bare. And St. Paul emphasizes Christ's imminent return repeatedly. Indeed, when he writes his first epistle to the church in Thessalonica, a church he founded during the second missionary journey, 50 to 52, he urges them to turn to God and wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath, to have hope in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes to be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones, and to be blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13-18, Paul encourages the persecuted believers 
by providing the exact sequence of events for the Lord's return. Clearly, Paul expects this to happen any moment. He writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep or died. In Thessalonica, within a very short time, there is internal persecution in the church of Thessalonica. People are being martyred. And those in the church ask Paul, well, when the Lord returns, what will happen to those who have already died? And perhaps more importantly, what will happen to me if I'm still walking around at the time? So Paul writes, I don't want you to be ignorant about those who die or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have died in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive at that time, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have already died. We're not going to jump to the front of the line. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are so alive and walking around will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Now go encourage each other with these words. And we will see the Lord return with a loud trumpet blast and those who have already died, resurrected, coming with him in Revelation chapter 19. As we move into the second half of the first century AD, we begin losing the eyewitness generation, those who saw Jesus and those who heard the apostles teach and preach. Through persecution or simple old age, the eyewitness generation is drawing to a close. So combine that with the tumultuous historical events of the times, and like a giant star suddenly collapsing in upon itself, history seems about to explode into a white-hot supernova. Toward the end of the first century, the time is ripe for an apocalyptic literary masterpiece to emerge. And it does in the book of Revelation. So now you say, it's becoming clear to me. The historical and cultural context of the latter half of the first century provided the fertile soil for Revelation. And the 700-year development of the apocalyptic genre with all its conventions tilled that soil. And our dog says, and once John planted the seed, revelation sprang up. Aren't you impressed with the clever metaphor? <laughs> now we move to the structural and stylistic design. And you know how much I like this stuff. In the book of Revelation, John crafts an intricately structured, tightly woven apocalyptic vision with the death throes of the old order of things, the triumphant return of Christ, the climactic battle between good and evil, the last judgment, and the birth of a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. All the conventions of the apocalyptic genre. 
We read in Revelation 21, the penultimate chapter in Revelation, the next to the last chapter. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Well, look at that. In the architecture of the Christian canon, the linear narrative that begins in Genesis 1 and 2 comes all the way full circle in Revelation 21 and 22. In Revelation 21 and 22, we are back in the Garden of Eden once again, redeemed, brought back to where we belong. And that's what redemption is. We start out where we belong, something takes us away from where we belong to where we don't belong, and a third party brings us back to where we do belong. That's redemption. And in the overarching narrative of Scripture, we start out where we belong, Genesis 1 and 2. Sin enters the world in Genesis 3. We move to where we don't belong. And through Christ, we're brought back to where we do belong. That linear narrative, by the time you get to the end of Revelation, comes right back around on itself. And we are in a new heaven and a new earth. There is no more death or mourning or crying or pain. And the Lord God himself walks among us just like in the Garden of Eden. Whoa, I am so impressed. John builds Revelation on a framework of threes and sevens. No surprise there. Prime numbers, complete and indivisible. Three, the number of the Trinity. Seven, the number of days in a week. The number of years to a sabbatical year. Seven times seven to a jubilee year. Threes and sevens repeat all over the place in the Bible. We've seen that already. And John will use the threes and sevens to build Revelation. Revelation chapter 1 verse 19 offers the key to its overall structure. When the risen and glorified Christ says to John, Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The basic structure of Revelation is tripartite. It's a three-part structure. I didn't have to figure it out. You don't have to figure it out. We're told that right in Revelation 1 at verse 19. What was, chapter 1, what is, the seven letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, and what will be later, chapters 4 through 22. As simple as that. Now, on your syllabus, the introductory essay takes everything from Lessons 1 and 2 and expands it in much more detail. I've also included a full outline of Revelation. What I'm about to show you is the summary of that outline, but you'll see the whole outline in the syllabus. And here it is, the summary. 
the basic three-part structure. Part one in orange at the top, what was, is chapter one. And part one is divided into three parts. The prologue, verses one through three, the revelation of Jesus Christ to John, unveiling what will soon take place. Number two, the introduction, verses four through eight, the message addressed specifically to the seven churches in the province of Asia Minor. And number three, the commission. Here's what you're to do, John. So part one consists of three parts. The center part, number two, speaks of the seven churches. Part two, what is? Chapters two and three. What is is the seven letters to the seven churches. Part three has two sets of three. The first set is the seven seals being opened, the seven trumpets being blown, and the seven bowls being poured. In the middle of those three parts, part two, we have an interlude, a flashback, the backstory of Revelation, which consists of three parts the woman clothed with the sun, the war in heaven, and preparation for Armageddon. The second set of three, all creation praises God, the battle of Armageddon itself, and the aftermath. And the aftermath consists of three parts, the millennial kingdom, the last judgment, and the new Jerusalem. Oh, wow. <laughs> Matthew, Mark, and Luke are looking over John's shoulder and saying, very nicely done, John, very nicely done. Looking at the structure of Revelation is like opening the back of a Swiss watch. It is perfectly designed. And now we move on to the message. As our author intended it for his audience in AD 100. Like all prophecy, Revelation speaks first and foremost into its own historical context through the conventions of its own literary genre. Revelation's context is the tumultuous time of the Roman Empire in the second half of the first century. And Revelation is the masterpiece of the era's apocalyptic genre. For those living at the time, History appeared to be careening toward a cliff. God, or the gods, was bringing history to a close through a series of great calamities. For Christians, that meant the return of Christ and the advent of the kingdom of heaven, of God redeeming all of creation. But when the first century passed into the second, and the second into the third, the imminent advent of the kingdom faded into the past. By the fourth century, the apocalyptic genre seemed anachronistic, a remnant of less sophisticated times. So consequently, including Revelation in the New Testament canon carried with it the very great difficulty that the events so vividly portrayed in the text the apocalyptic vision of the end times, the return of Christ, the last judgment, the advent of the kingdom of God, had in fact not happened. 
So including revelation in the canon required a different way of reading the text. And St. Augustine provided it. Recall our fourth century, a hugely important century in Christianity. In AD 300, about 10% of the Roman Empire would say they were Christians. Christianity was an outlawed religion. But in 313, the Emperor Constantine signed the Edict of Milan, officially tolerating Christianity in the Roman Empire. And in 325, Constantine called the Council of Nicaea, gathering all the leaders of the major metropolitan areas in the Roman Empire together and come to consensus and define what it is we believed as Christians. And the Nicene Creed emerged from that. The Nicene Creed that as Roman Catholics we recite every Sunday as a reminder of what it is we believe. And then in 383, the Emperor Theodosius I made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. By AD 400, 90% of the Roman Empire was Christian. It is a gigantic century, and St. Augustine is at the epicenter. He is born in 353, and he will die in 430. He is the major figure of that century. St. Augustine wrote his Confessions, an autobiography that tells of his conversion to Christianity over a decade earlier in AD 386 at the age of 33. Augustine was enormously bright, one of the brightest men of the first thousand years of the church. He was highly educated in classical rhetoric, groomed and trained to be a rhetorician, someone who could argue forcefully both orally and in writing. And he was groomed for success at the very highest levels of Roman society. He had the best education money could buy. His mother was a Christian, Monica. His father, Patricius, was a pagan. He lived in a mixed home. At 17 years old, he left his native Thagaste, North Africa, for Carthage. The boy left the hometown for the big city. And in Carthage, he sampled the fullness of life. At 17 years old, much like many young men leaving home, when I left home at 18 and went into the Marine Corps, I sampled life about as deeply as it could be sampled. Augustine sampled the sexual, theatrical, and gastronomic pleasures. But at the same time, he was being drawn into a search for truth, largely as a result of reading Cicero's Hortensius. As a sidebar, it was in Carthage that Augustine uttered his famous prayer, grant me chastity and continence, but not yet. <laughs> in Carthage, Augustine sampled scripture for the first time. He had never read scripture before. But in Carthage, he thought, you know, I should check it out. And he recounts his experience in book three of the Confessions. He writes, accordingly, I turned my attention to the Holy Scriptures to find out what they were like. What I see in them today is something not accessible to the scrutiny of the proud nor exposed to the gaze of the immature, as I was at the time, he said. 
Something lowly as one enters, but lofty as one advances farther. Something veiled in mystery. At the time, though, I was in no state to enter, nor prepared to bow my head and accommodate myself to its ways. My approach then was quite different from the one I'm suggesting now. When I studied the Bible and compared it with Cicero's dignified prose, it seemed to me unworthy. Only later does Augustine understand that although the literal meaning of Scripture is important, that is, the story it tells, its diction, grammar, style, and so on, its deeper meaning is more important. In books one through nine of his Confessions, Augustine recounts the story of his conversion. In books 10 through 13, he meditates upon his conversion, ruminating on the concept of memory in book 10 and time in book 11, how time shapes our memories of the past. And then he presents a detailed exegesis of Genesis chapter 1, the creation story, in the latter part of book 11 and in books 12 and 13. And in that exegesis of the primeval chapters of Genesis, Augustine goes beyond the literal meaning of Scripture to probe its deeper spiritual meaning. In short, Augustine makes the leap from the literal text into allegory. And once free to move beyond the literal reading of Revelation and see it as an allegory of humanity's redemption or even the individual soul's redemption, Barriers to including it in the canon fell, and it slipped easily into the canon as a fitting conclusion to the vast sweep of the biblical narrative, Genesis through Revelation. It was Augustine who called the Council of Hippo in 393, and one of the items on the agenda is, if we are to be a people of the book and regard scripture as inspired, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, was already established by the Jews by A.D. 90. But now in 393, there are more books. There are Gospels, there are letters, and so on. So what books should be considered as part of the canon of the New Testament, as inspired by God? And Augustine suggested a list of 27, many of which have been suggested before. But boy, Revelation was in the gray area for sure. But given Augustine's new way of reading scripture, he included it in the list. It was approved by the Council of Hippo and then onward from there. So Revelation made it into the canon. It took 350 years for it to happen. Today, we understand that the rise of the church in the fourth and fifth centuries and its apex in the late Middle Ages and early Renaissance did not signal the arrival of the kingdom of God on earth. Quite the contrary. The centuries that followed saw the church fracture like crystal into a thousand shards, diminishing in luminosity, credibility, and authority in the modern world. We just returned from Italy about a month ago, 
and we were in Venice and Padua and Florence and Siena and Assisi and Rome and there were fabulous, beautiful churches that were essentially museums. Only tourists were in them. God only knows what the future holds for the church. Yet, Revelation continues to be as popular as ever. If we engage Revelation as educated readers of Scripture, placing it within its proper historical context, recognizing its literary genre, understanding its structural and stylistic devices, and discerning its meaning on multiple levels, our reading of Revelation need not be limited. Indeed, like the rest of Scripture, Revelation is rich in meaning, its depths never exhausted. Limiting our understanding to a simple two-dimensional prophecy of imminent future events like Hal Lindsey or the Left Behind series, or giving up and classifying it as a mystery, impoverishes our experience of the text and diminishes our understanding of Scripture itself. Scripture is world-class literature of the highest order. It's dazzling in its structure, profound in its subtlety, and glittering in its richness. Revelation functions as the final chapter in the grand story of humanity's redemption. And it brings into bold relief the pain and struggle of the human condition. It illuminates the quest for meaning and it opens the door to eternity. Five questions. Number one, why is it important to view Revelation within the broader context of the apocalyptic genre? Because not only does Revelation emerge from its historical and cultural context, but it's part of a long genre of literature that employs all the conventions of that literature as well. Revelation just doesn't suddenly appear at the end of the first century. It has its antecedents. Number two, what are three examples of other biblical texts in the apocalyptic genre? Well, I gave you a whole list of them earlier on. Number three, why would John's audience believe that Jesus' return was imminent? Because he said it was. And both Paul and Peter emphasize it in their writing. Everyone expected the Lord to return in their lifetime. Number four, John builds Revelation structure on sets of threes and sevens. Why do you think he does that? It's convention in biblical writing, and for Revelation, it forms a very tight structure that mirrors all the rest of Scripture as a final fitting conclusion. And number five, if the Lord didn't return in the lifetime of the apostles, and indeed still hasn't, how can you justify including Revelation in the canon of Scripture? You can only justify it if you read it on multiple levels as St. Augustine introduced back in the 4th century. You've been listening to Scripture Uncovered, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Don't forget, you can get 30% off enrollment in Revelation in the Logos Online Classroom by entering coupon code PATMOS2018, P-A-T-M-O-S 2018, at checkout. Just visit LogosBibleStudy.com for more. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week as Dr. Creasy and his Logos students set off in the footsteps of St. Paul in Greece. We'll see you then.